Have you ever had something happen to you that just made you want to pull your hair out? Just, just something so frustrating, so, something so devastating. You know, I think there's been a lot of things like that in our world right now. Just things that just make you want to pull your hair out of your head. You know, maybe when I say the, the phrase e-learning, just makes you want to go, ugh. Or maybe when I say election season, ugh. You know, these are crazy things. Or if you're a Bears fan, dare I say it, the phrase double doink. Oh, oh my goodness. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just ask any Bears fan. They can tell you what I'm referring to. These are things that make us want to pull the hair out of our heads. And for me this week, the thing that made me, made me want to do this was actually studying this passage, Ezra chapters 9 and 10, uh, because it's one of the more difficult passages of the Old Testament. In fact, one scholar uh, says that this is the least attractive part of Ezra and Nehemiah, if not of the whole Old Testament. So who's excited to dive into this passage with me this morning? Because I am, all right? But the, the irony is not lost on me that this text comes to us where, if you joined us last week, we talked about the great importance of studying the whole Word of God and obeying the whole Word of God and teaching the Word of God. And how Martin Luther described the Bible as like this great tree and that he wanted to climb up every branch and shake it so that he knew what it meant. And I, I about wanted to pull my hair out climbing up the branches of Ezra chapters 9 and 10. Uh, you know, what can we learn from this story for followers of Jesus today? And funny enough, I think the key to this story is in the fact that Ezra is pulling the hair out of his head and his beard in the story. And in the sermon, we're continuing our series, From Ruins to Restoration, and I want you to know that the journey to restoration was not smooth. It included many rough patches. It included this moment of Ezra sitting down, pulling his hair out, and being absolutely devastated. Why? Well, you see, Ezra, he had come to lead this reformation around God's Word, and after he has, arrives in Jerusalem, some leaders come up to him and they approach Ezra and they let him know that there are some people, including the religious leaders, the priests, who have, they have not separated themselves from the detestable, detestable practices of the people in the land that are living near them and around them. In fact, in Ezra 9 verse 2, it says, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. And when Ezra hears this, it causes him to go into mourning, deep mourning, pulling his hair out, sitting down, devastated. And then he begins a long prayer of confession, which makes up chapter 9, uh, talking about how sinful the people have been. Then he gets to chapter 10, and as Ezra is still weeping and confessing, a man comes up to him and has a proposal. And he says, let's divorce the women and send away the children. And Ezra and the leaders agree to this plan, and they form a committee who speak with all the families and implement the plan. And then chapter 10, it ends with this list of all of the men who had married these foreign women and divorced them. That's how it ends. In the story, it doesn't tell us what happened to these women and children. The interest of this text does not lie there, but likely they went back to their father's household um, but the story is not interested in that question. I think we're, but we wonder, 
You know, why is, why is this a good thing? Why was this the solution to what was going on? And I think we need to, at the outset, we need to clarify a few things. Uh, that this passage is not uh, prescriptive, it is descriptive. It is descriptive of something that happened. You know, the scriptures, they're often describing the narrative, the story of God's people. And that does not mean they are prescribing that we should do what is described. And so the story that we're reading today, this was an unusual case in the history of Israel at a very critical moment when they had just returned from exile. And so it's not prescriptive for all time and what we should take uh, as advice for us in our day necessarily. Uh, the second clarification that I need to, to talk about is that this was not really about the Israelites marrying foreign people. You see, the Old Testament did not outrightly prohibit this. In fact, many of the greatest Jewish leaders, Joseph, Moses, David, uh, they, and Boaz, they were all married to non-Israelites. The problem is not that these women were foreign, it is that they were people in the land living among them, near them, who worshipped other gods and had other sinful practices not in line with the Torah. And what Ezra is seeing is he is seeing that history is about to repeat itself. You see, many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago, uh, when God had rescued the people out of Egypt and was preparing them to enter the promised land, the land of his people, he had told them not to intermarry with the people of the land. And I want to show you what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says this, You must not intermarry with them, that's the people of the land, not all foreigners, and you must not give them your daughters to their sons or, or take their daughters for your sons, because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. It's a big warning. And unfortunately, we know that in the story, Israel does compromise. They do intermarry with the people of the land. Most famously, King Solomon, who had so many wives and, and many of them foreign, and they influenced him to worship other gods, so much so that actually there were uh, places of worship in Jerusalem dedicated to the worship of foreign gods and idols in Jerusalem. And all of this idol worship all of these sinful practices led to God punishing the people and sending them into exile to Babylon. And now the people are back in the promised land and Ezra, he sees that the people, including the pastors of the, of the people, they are marrying women who worship other gods. So Ezra, he sees it happening again. He says, oh no, History, it's about to repeat itself. The very compromises that led them into exile in the first place are about to happen again unless a radical change happens right now. Then something bad will happen. They could go back into exile. Something needs to be done. And that is why Ezra is devastated. He is, he is genuinely dismayed. And he knows that it is quite possible God may punish the people again. So what does Ezra do? Well, he sits down and starts to pull his hair out. But what is he going to do to reform the people around the word of God? And I think it's when we look at what Ezra does here that may, there are some things that maybe we can learn from. 
what Ezra does to reform the people around the Word of God in this critical moment in the people's history. The first thing that Ezra does is Ezra, he took compromise with sin very seriously. He took compromise with sin very seriously. The people, the leaders, they tell Ezra, Ezra that the people around them have not separated themselves from what he calls the detestable practices. And usually that means idol worship, sorcery, witchcraft, prostitution, or maybe even sacrificing a son or a daughter in the fire to a foreign god. I mean, these were awful things. And it's not that the people had abandoned Yahweh to go do this stuff. No, they were worshiping Yahweh, their Lord, alongside these other gods in these practices. And you know what? It didn't really seem to bother the people all that much. They didn't see a problem with the compromise. But it devastated, devastated Ezra. And that word devastated in verse 3, chapter 9, verse 3, it means that he is astonished, he is appalled, he is horrified at what he sees happening. You see, sin was incredibly serious to Ezra. And I think we have to ask ourselves in our day, are we ever devastated when we see God's people compromising with the world around them? Like the people in Ezra's day, I think we often don't see compromise with sin as a big deal. But friends, we must endeavor to have the mind of Christ about sin, to see it as evil and as an enemy to be defeated. You know, in our Bible reading, we just re recently finished Romans, and, I, and I, that, there's a phrase in Romans 12, 9 where Paul says, hate what is evil. Hate what is evil. I paused over that and I asked, gosh, do I hate what is evil? Do I hate evil and sin? Do I hate the sin I see in myself? Do I hate evil in this world? I mean, why would we hate evil? We have to remind ourselves because it's a tool of the enemy that destroys lives, our lives, families, churches, communities, and the whole creation. Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you this morning that the church has not often hated evil enough. We have not been turned off by the arrogant pride, by the evil conduct, and by the per perverse speech that we have seen in ourselves and others and in our religious and political leaders. We have compromised with it. We have not hated racism enough. We have not hated greed enough. We have not hated sexual immorality enough. We have not hated gossip and slander enough. We have compromised with these things. You see, God hates sin because he loves the world so much. You see, as a father, I hate anything that would corrupt my daughter or ruin her life. I hate anything that would do that. And I want to protect her from that. But in our world, we have been so desensitized to sin that it no longer seems to really bother us because we watch it on TV, we see it on the internet, we, we see it all over the place, and we're entertained by it. We have fun with it, and so it doesn't bother us anymore. In fact, and, and we see it, and our culture celebrates it. In fact, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1 that people would have all these kinds of sinful practices, and they would approve of those who do them. 
That means that they would, it would be celebrated in the culture. But for the church, we need to agree with, with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, that love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. So not only must we regard sin as evil, we must remember that it is powerful. It's a powerful force that we need to take so seriously. The Puritan preacher John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's a deadly force. And I think we have trouble relating to this passage in Ezra because sometimes we don't view sin as very evil or very powerful. And Ezra is a reminder that sin in the community It's a powerful force, and sometimes drastic measures are necessary in order to protect the community. I mean, Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus says, do something drastic. If there is anything that competes with our love for Christ, if there's anything that begins to invade our life, sometimes we need to make to take drastic steps to make sure that we get rid of it before it harms us and kills us. So Ezra, he took sin, compromised with sin very seriously. That's number one. Number two is Ezra took God's calling to be separate very seriously. The calling to be separate very seriously. So the leaders come up to Ezra and they say these people, they have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples. You see, God's people were supposed to be separate from the people around them, to be set apart, to be holy. And the problem is, is that the community witnessed is now, is now being compromised because families will now be worshiping multiple gods and not following God's law. But ever, ever since the fall, God has been trying to carve out a people for his name in the earth who would glorify him and, and Show the washing world what he is like. And this is uh, what God said in Exodus 9, 16, after he delivers them out of Egypt. He says, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession. Out of all the peoples, although, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. A nation of people set apart from all the others. So friends, we are to be a peculiar people, a strange people, a weird people in this world. And that's why Ezra is so devastated, pulling his hair out. Their whole purpose for coming back into the land to be a special people once again is about to be destroyed. Because, friends, when we sin, we often don't think of the effect it will have on the watching world. You know, I think there was a time in the Christian church when, when people were concerned for their witness. You know, remember that word? It, it was a common motivator for behavior uh, that was considering whether something would be a good witness or not to people who might see or know about it. And that was a good motivation, a holy motivation. And as a self-described evangelical church, we ought to be concerned that the, by the witness of our actions in the world. This is what the Apostle Peter reminded them in the early church. He said, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles 
so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. You see, we have to reclaim our responsibility that the world is watching us and what we do. So we're to abstain from sinful behavior and to do good works so that other people would see the goodness of God. And wouldn't you agree that Christianity needs a better reputation in our world right now? We have allowed our witness to be tarnished by, ba- our, by our bad behavior and by our associating ourselves with toxicity, by our behavior on the internet. You know, the world's always going to think Christianity is weird, but they should at least know that we are morally upright people who love God and love others with a passion. So we need to, we need to take our collective, our witness seriously. And that's number two. Number three is Ezra took group identity very seriously. He took group identity very seriously. And this one, I think, is the, the one that rubs us the most because we're not familiar with this. We have a profoundly individualistic culture. We do not have a strong sense of group identity really anywhere or to anybody. Even though this is kind of contrary to most cultures and most of the world for most of history, uh, we are very unique in this. And we have lost the idea that what one person does affects the whole community. And it's part of the responsibility of the community to watch out for the behavior of the individuals. You see, Ezra viewed what was happening as part of what was happening to the whole group. In fact, when he prays, look what he says. He says, My God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face toward you. My God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads, and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our ancestors until the present. Do you notice all the the hours in there? All the hours in that. It is a group identity. Even though he was not personally guilty, Ezra included himself in the guilt. In fact, I want to show you another quote from a scholar named Kleins. He said, it's not simply that certain individuals have broken the law, but that the community has sinned in being the kind of community where such actions could occur and be tolerated among them. There is responsibility that the group had for the kind of people and the kind of behavior that they allowed and tolerated within the community. Now, of course, the Bible teaches that we will all individually be judged and stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But there is a sense that the church is collectively responsible for the behavior that we allow in our midst. In fact, the writer of Hebrews basically was was saying this in, in chapter 12, that we ought to make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Did you notice that? We are to see to it. See to it. We are to, we are to see to it that our community is holy. We are to see to it that we are not bitter towards one another, that we are not sexually immoral, and that we are a holy community. 
And our motivation is not some type of inquisition or things like that to make people just feel terrible about themselves. No, our motivation is love. It is love for that person. And it's also, our motivation is also that we have a strong, strong group identity. You know, when I was a runner in high school, uh, we often, we really did not stay out late on Friday nights. Even though everybody was staying out late on Friday nights, the cross-country team did not. Because Saturday morning was a meet. It was a race day. And so it's, we just, it's something we just did not do. We did not go out and, and party or join with whatever was going on on Friday night. And it was because we were part of this team. We were part of this community that has goals and that has purpose and that my actions will affect the whole. You see, if I stay out late on Friday, that means I'm not going to get a good night of sleep and I'm not going to perform well and ultimately that is going to hurt the team. And so the team, they saw to it. They saw to it that no one was going to stay out on a Friday night. In fact, we'd have dinner together and we'd kind of encourage each other to go to bed, get a good night rest. We held each other accountable to getting a good night rest on Friday, to eating well that day so that we would be successful together when we showed up the next morning. You see, this was a profound sense of group identity, that what the individual does affects the whole and that the whole is responsible to see to it, seeing to it that the individual will align themselves with the community's goals. And this is what we're called to do in the church. You know, the Apostle Paul says, don't you know that a little leaven is going to work through the whole batch of dough? I mean, don't you know that a little sin unchecked in the community can work its way in? I mean, the knowledge is assumed that one person affects everybody else. You know, it's kind of like a little virus can cause an outbreak. I mean, that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. And I think, you know, for our church, uh, our church is congregational. And uh, the tradition that we're a part of encourages church membership. And church membership, I mean, it's necessary because that's our polity and it grants voting rights and, and uh, allows one to be elected to leadership. Uh, but I think fundamentally, it's, it's much more important than that. It's about entering in to a covenant relationship of accountability and mutuality. You see, there is a time when people would expect their church to check in on them if they were not attending worship regularly if they weren't serving somewhere, if they weren't giving to the church regularly. Uh, and the church has always viewed itself as mutually responsible. That we said, hey, we're a part of this community that we're, we're all followers of Jesus. And so we need to be part of this, this team, this culture that sees to it that we give a good witness to the community and that we have the kind of behavior that we expect around here. That's the goal. And, you know, I think most things, they're not going to require the uh, the extreme measures as we saw in the case of Ezra, but this but simple accountability to living as followers of Jesus goes such a long way. And it's something that we should pursue. It's something that we should want. And it's something that we should give as a gift to somebody else. We have to remember that iron sharpens iron. So that's why we always encourage people in our church to get familiar with asking the phrase, hey, how goes your walk? How's your walk with the Lord going? We want, we want to make this a part of small groups, a part of men's and women's gatherings, a part of uh, all kinds of meetings to ask each other, how are you really doing? See, our covenant ancestors who asked this question, they knew that there was a strong group identity that was attached to how we follow Jesus individually. 
And, and I think even beyond this, if I could draw your visions out even further, not only do what, do what we do as individuals affect our whole church community, it's going to affect the generations even beyond us. You see, how we're living now is going to be passed down to the children and grandchildren coming after us. They're watching and learning. How do, how do you live as a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be part of a church? What does it mean to be part of a community that follows Jesus? And so how we live together as a church is so important because it not only affects all of us, it affects the next generation. So that there's no greater, there's no stronger group identity than that to realize that our actions affect everybody else and the generation coming behind us. So if I can recap what I've said so far, Ezra, he took compromise with sin very seriously. He took God's calling to be separate very seriously. And he took group identity very seriously. And there are a few applications I want us to draw from this text besides what we've talked about so far. One is we can learn from Ezra how to learn, uh, to, to learn how to mourn over our sin. You know, Ezra, he teaches us how to mourn. He sits down, he pulls his hair out, and he, and he mourns over their guilt. He considers that God is potentially anger, angry with them. But he also mentions God's grace, that he has brought them back from exile. He brought them into this land. And so this, considering this tension that we see, you know, Romans, Romans 11.22 says, consider God's kindness and his severity. And how we do that is we look at the cross. When we look at the cross, we see God's severity towards sin. Because nothing less than God taking on the punishment for our sin could justify the things that we have done and our rebellion towards an all-holy God. But also when you consider the cross, you see God's immense kindness to us. That he in his own self through his son would reconcile us to himself by, through his blood, paying that penalty freely out of his love to draw us into relationship with him. You know, if you only consider God's severity when you mourn over sin, it's going to lead you to, to despair. But if you only consider God's kindness when you think about your sin, it will likely lead you to excuse your sin. So we need to look at the cross and consider the kindness and severity of God towards sin. The second thing that we can learn is that we can hold marriage, family, and singleness in high honor. In high honor. You see, in Ezra chapters 9 through 10 in the New Testament, they both recognize the extreme influence that the person you marry has on the marriage itself and the children and the broader community to which you are a part of. And if Christ Jesus is your Lord, then you should want nothing else than the, the person you marry to value the one that you most hold dear, something you can cherish, someone you can cherish Christ with, and, and talk about Jesus and spiritual things with, and someone that you can trust to pass on this love for Christ down to the next generation. And just to all of you people who are married and with families, I want to remind you this morning that I believe the most important thing that you can give to your spouse and to your kids is a growing, loving walk with Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important you could give them than that. And for 2,000 years, the church tradition has considered and taught that both marriage and the calling of singleness 
our honored vocations in the church for the sake of the kingdom. These, these stations in life, they are not primarily uh, a means of self-fulfillment or fulfill, fulfillment of our dreams, but they are vocations for kingdom ministry and work. Marriages and families, they are tiny churches unto themselves. And singleness is an honored vocation unto kingdom work that is grafted into the family of God. See, this is a different story than the world tells about these stations in life. But we hold them in high honor as kingdom outposts for the Lord. And finally, the last thing that we can learn from Ezra is to have no compromise. To have no compromise with sin. You know, Hebrews 12 says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus. Friends, fixing our eyes on Jesus, not on anything else, not on old glory, on Jesus. You see, we are to hate what is evil. We are to hate idolatry. We are to hate the sin enough in our lives, and we are to love God, others, and ourselves enough that we should cut sin off completely. And the health of our church and of the church depends on you having a vibrant spiritual life of no compromise. The witness of the church in our world is dependent on how well we live and reflect the glory of God as the Spirit empowers us and works through us. And how you are living is having an impact on our church and on the generations coming after you. So sin is not neutral. Have no compromise with it. Throw it off and run this race with perseverance. And if it comes to it, let's have the courage of Ezra to mourn, to pull our hair out and to repent and to do whatever is necessary to obey God above all else.